Today's sermon is from Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Then a time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in cool water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let them mourn him, so they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convicted even if someone rises from the dead. So here's a question for you. What would you do if someone gave you a million dollars? Go ahead. What, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Uh, maybe somebody won the lottery and a family member and they want to just kind of give you this windfall. Uh, or maybe, you know, there was an investment, an inheritance or something. You've got this windfall. There's a million dollars. What are you going to do with it? I, I ask this question quite often, actually. And if you've heard me preach in the last couple of years, you've heard a similar sort of question. But it's a fun question to ask people. Whenever I ask, the overwhelming majority almost have an immediate response to that question. It's like we, we think about it. And I suppose it makes sense that we think about it now and again. Uh, we might be driving down the street and see a, a lotto sign with kind of the jackpot for the weekend. And, and you've probably been there. I know I have. You've sort of seen there and kind of 20 million or whatever. And you're like, oh, I know what I would do with that. And, and it's always fascinating because when I ask people, there's kind of these similar, similar categories that people have their winnings kind of already pegged out. Uh, there are those who would say, well, the first thing I would do is pay off a whole bunch of debts. You know, I've got these student loan debts, I've got these car loan debts, I've got mortgage debts, uh, or whatever it is, I, I've got these debts and I would pay those off. Others, uh, kind of a bit like me, I guess, uh, the first response is, oh, there's this car that I'm looking at. For me, there's this truck I'm looking at. It's beautiful. Uh, and, and there we go. That's the first thing I would do with my money. Um, others might say, well, I'd go on a holiday. I'd just take a break, get away from it all, go somewhere sunny and hot down by a beach and just kind of this tropical paradise. Uh, of course, with COVID on the go, that's not happening for any of us anytime soon. Others might say, well, I would buy a house uh, or, or use it as a significant down payment or portion on a house. But here's the interesting thing about that question. The overwhelming majority of people, when they are asked that question, the instinctive response is to spend it on self. 
Kind of the first thing is, that's my money, I'm going to spend it on me. Every now and then, then there is a, a, a small exception where somebody might start off by going, well, I've got a family member who's in desperate need, and I would just bless them. Or I know of this situation where they, they need support, and, and I would bless that. Uh, and I'm always blown away that there are still people who would think about others first. And now, of course, if that was you and, and you first thought about somebody else, don't get all proud about it because that's also a sin, just like the rest of us who are kind of coveting other products or, or material gain. But the overwhelming majority of people will spend it on self. But what if I just slightly alter that question? And instead of asking, what would you do if you were won a million dollars or if you were given a million dollars, let me ask it like this. What would God want you to do with a million dollars if he gave it to you? Now, that's a subtle difference to that question. And when that question is asked, it's almost like most of us instinctively know, well, if God gave this to me, he would want me to bless other people. He would want me to use this to serve other people. Uh, you know, some of us might kind of go, well, if God really wanted me to have it and God gave it to me, well, of course, then it's mine. Uh, but most of us, the overwhelming majority, if that question is, what does God expect of you? Suddenly it becomes about other people. Now, why is that? Why is it so easy for it to become about other people? Well, I think it's easy because we instinctively understand the ethics of God's kingdom. We instinctively understand that God never intended life to be all about ourselves. God never intended for us to kind of just pursue our own material gain and our own wealth or our own happiness or whatever. God intends for us to live in community and God intends for us to serve one another and to give to one another and to be generous with what we have for one another. And so the, the kingdom ethics are so much more different to what we would see in the world around us. We know that in God's economy, in God's kingdom, it's, it's about loving God and loving others. And if I love God and I love others, well, then I know it's better to give than to receive. I know it's better to serve. It's better to be generous. It's better to help where help is needed. And that's completely the opposite to the world's economy. And the world around us keeps telling us, look out for number one. Pursue gain for number one. Make sure you can accumulate as much as you can possibly accumulate or amass as much as you can amass because it's all about you and it's, it's all for you. So even a little question like that, we, we immediately see the world's economy, the, the world's ethics are so much different to God's economy and God's ethics. So why do I start off by talking about God's ethics or kingdom ethics in God's economy? Well, that's what this morning's passage of Scripture touches on. And we just read from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And, and there, there are a lot of themes in there, and there are a couple of things that we could look at. But when I read through that passage of Scripture, I see two main themes almost running in parallel to one another, and both of those themes coming to the same conclusion and the same final point. 
And we'll get on to that conclusion and final point in a moment. But what are the two themes that really jump out from that passage we've read? Well, the first theme is the ethics in God's kingdom. And then the second theme is responding to the witness of the prophets, responding to the witness of the word, responding to scripture and what it calls us to do and who it directs us to and who it witnesses to and testifies to. The ethics in God's kingdom and responding to the witness of scripture. So what's going on in this passage? What's the context? What's the detail? Well, Jesus tells a a parable or a story. It's not quite a pure parable because typically parables take everyday occurrences or everyday images and metaphors and have a subtle twist to them that might give a deep spiritual or theological truth. And in this case, Jesus uses a story or tells a story of something that's not really an everyday occurrence. It's this image of a rich man and a poor man who live and then pass away. And what happens in that moment after, after their lives have been lived? And as we look at the story, as we look at the characters, there's this generic rich man. And I say generic because he's unnamed. Uh, we don't know who this character is. He's not attributed to anyone or likened to anyone. We just simply know he is a rich man. Uh, he's had a good life. Things have worked out well for him. He has whatever his heart's desire uh, wants, and he's able to just fulfill whatever wish he has. So we have this rich man. But then we, in kind of contrast to the rich man, we have this poor man. And the poor man is given a name. This is Lazarus. And in so doing, Lazarus is given personality. Lazarus is given identity. For me, when I read through a story like this, uh, it's almost like God reminds his audience, many of us might feel poor. Many of us may well be poor. Uh, We might feel like the weight of the world is upon us and, and it's hard and difficult and I'm going through trials and struggles and in the story, Jesus kind of highlights the plight of the poor and the marginalized. And, and he almost says, God sees you. God knows you. God knows your name in the midst of this place you find yourself in. So we have this rich man. We have this poor man, Lazarus. Uh, in life, one has it all. One has next to nothing. Uh, in fact, not only does he have next to nothing and nothing, but he's covered in sores and, and the dogs come and lick these sores clean. And again, in that image and in that day, that would make Lazarus ceremonially unclean. So not only does Lazarus have nothing and just long to get the crumbs off the rich man's table, but Lazarus is unclean. And this would mean Lazarus hasn't been able to go into the temple. He hasn't been able to go and worship. He hasn't been able to go and offer prayer and sacrifice. He really is just outcast as far as society is concerned. Yet God knows him. And so in this story, we introduce to these two lives, these two polar opposite lives. And of course, as all life we know ends in death, every one of us will die. So Jesus says, they die. And then he moves into this image of the afterlife, this picture of the afterlife. And, and suddenly their roles are reversed. Lazarus is now up uh, next to Abraham in paradise. 
And there's this great chasm that separates them. And on the other side, here is this rich man who is now in Hades, uh, in this place of torment, of suffering, of, of, of trial and pain. And, and he's in this place of pain, in this place of suffering. And he kind of looks up and he sees, hey, there's Abraham and, and there's Lazarus. And I love the wording. I love the image. Because the rich man still has this mindset of, well, I'm rich and I get what I want. He doesn't address Lazarus. He doesn't concern himself with Lazarus, really. He addresses Abraham and, and he says to Abraham, send Lazarus. It's almost like in his kind of worldview, Lazarus is still a servant. Lazarus is still below me. Lazarus is still there to do my bidding. And so he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to, to come and dip his finger in the cool water and to quench my thirst and to help my plight. And of course, Abraham says, no, I, I can't do that. There's this great chasm between us and nobody can cross over between the two. This is a final state, as it were. And so the rich man then pleads, well, again, send Lazarus to go and tell my brothers, warn them. And of course, Abraham says, no, they have the prophets to warn them. And, and we'll get into that portion in a moment. But the first thing for me that stands out in this passage is this idea of God's kingdom ethics. What do I mean by God's kingdom ethics? Well, I think this parable gives us an indication of how God expects us to live our lives, regardless of what we think we do or do not have. It's this image, it's this idea of serving and, and giving and being generous. Now, of course, this is not a message about works-based salvation. Uh, Jesus is not saying, had that rich man simply done all the right things, he would be in paradise. No, the whole council of Scripture, when weighed together and weighed with each side by side, we see that salvation is a gift of grace. That's what Paul summarizes in Ephesians chapter 2. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through our works. We don't get to boast that we earned our merit before God. No, it's, it's by grace. But even so, Scripture still lays out, and Jesus preached over and over, this expectation that disciples of Jesus Christ, the chosen children of God, those who were in the kingdom of God, there was still an expectation that they would live in a certain way. We talk about kingdom ethics, that they would live in such a way so as to manifest the kingdom and so as to make the kingdom evident. And this wasn't just Jesus teaching this. If we go all the way back into the Old Testament, we read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is littered with calls for kingdom ethics and kingdom living. Yeah, I sometimes chuckle when somebody comes along and says, well, isn't the Old Testament just all about killing off God's enemies and, and how God just expects kind of all this destruction? And well, have you read the Old Testament? Sure, there are some difficult passages for us to make sense of, but all the way through the Old Testament, there is also this call to live and to serve and to be generous for those who do not have, to look out for the poor, to look out for the marginalized, to look out for the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. And if we would read through the Old Testament, we would see over and over 
I mean, they're just a, a handful of scriptures to look at and really the whole way through the Old Testament. But if I start in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, simply says, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's, year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Way back in Deuteronomy with all these rules and regulations for the nation of Israel, right there and over and over through Deuteronomy. God expects his people to live serving and caring and looking after those who are marginalized and those who do not have. If we jump into Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 10, there's this warning, this woe, and chapter 10 opens up with, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. And there's this warning to the nation of Israel. Don't deprive the poor of rights. Don't abuse, don't, don't take, don't marginalize. But instead serve, give, be generous. This is what the kingdom is all about. And then as we finish off the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5 of chapter 3 simply says, I will come to you and put you on trial. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. I will come to you and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice but who do not fear me. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, there is this call over and over. Kingdom ethics are about generosity, of, about looking out for those who societally, society marginalizes and pushes aside. We're supposed to look out for the alien, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, those in desperate need. But it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament repeats this theme. We read in Mark chapter 12 of the great commandment when Jesus is tested on the great commandment and Jesus says, well, the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. But not only is it love the Lord your God, the second and part of it is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God and love others. This is what the kingdom calls us into. Loving neighbor, and neighbor isn't somebody who looks like us, who smells like us, who sounds like us. No, neighbor are those who are created in the image of God to whom we can serve and be generous to, towards. God's kingdom ethics require that we respond. And we don't simply say, but we do. And we've heard it said before, to whom much is given, much is required. I would say in kingdom ethics, whatever you've been given, God still requires that you serve and that you be generous. As somebody once said, if you find yourself blessed, if you find yourself receiving and you have more than you know what to do with, well, build a bigger table, not a bigger wall. Love God, love others. Love is supposed to be visible. Love is supposed to be evident. 
as we heard so many years ago, love is a verb. And this is what Jesus constantly calls his disciples. This is what Jesus constantly calls you and I into. Into this love in action. Not just in words, not just in singing a couple of songs in a church service. No, go and be generous. Go and serve. Go and do. My friends, you and I need to make this practical. In fact, even as you're watching this this morning, maybe or today, maybe the opportunity for you is to pray and to say, God, how would you have me respond? What is it you would have me do today? Is there somebody to whom I can give? Is there somebody to whom I can serve? How can I be generous? How can I live out these kingdom ethics in light of being a child of God? And as you pray that prayer, God will honor it and God will answer it. God will prompt you with someone coming to mind. And and I would encourage you, go and respond to that prompting. Go and serve. Go and do. Make this practical. You see, if we wish to live in God's kingdom, and if we wish to see God's kingdom come and God's kingdom be manifest, then you and I need to learn to live out the ethics of God's kingdom. That's what the story is designed to do. It's to challenge the audience. How will you live in the kingdom of God? But not only is it part of God's kingdom ethics, there's this parallel refrain going through as well. And it's this whole idea of how will you respond to the witness of the prophets and of scripture and of the word? This is what happens in the story. The rich man realizes he's separated from God. He's in Hades. This is his final state. He will be in torment, separated from God, separated from Abraham and Lazarus and and from anything good. And he realizes, well, his brothers face the same consequence and his brothers face the same future. So again, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus. Because if Lazarus rises from the dead and he goes and warns them, they will listen to him. They'll heed his warning. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe. But will they, though? I love kind of this uh, image in Matthew 28, and right at the end, uh, we know the great commission from Matthew 28 verses 18 and onwards, where Jesus comes to the disciples and says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. And it's this awesome image, this awesome commission. But in verse 17, the one right before that commission, we read that as the crowds followed Jesus, as the disciples came to Jesus up onto the mountain, some worshipped, or many worshipped, but some doubted. But some doubted. They knew who Jesus was. They saw Jesus crucified, this public execution. They knew Jesus was dead. And here Jesus stands in front of them alive, raised from the dead, and yet they doubt. Abraham is right. Even if Lazarus were to go back from the dead, they would still doubt. They would not listen and they would not believe. No, they have the prophets to listen to. They have scripture. They have the law and the wisdom. And if they won't respond to that, they will deal with the consequence. Why is that? Well, because hard hearts are difficult to break. 
You know, when, when I read this and listen to Jesus' story and see Abraham or hear Abraham saying they have the prophets, I'm reminded you and I have so much more than just the prophets. We have the whole, the complete counsel of Scripture, which the Holy Spirit brings to life and teaches us the Word of God. We have the witness, the testimony to Jesus Christ. And of course, I know many people, when we talk about the Scriptures and we talk about the Bible, many people would say, well, is the Bible reliable? How can you believe some ancient writing that's some 2,000 years old? How can you believe it when there's so many different authors? And aren't there, suppo- aren't there a couple of contradictions? Uh, isn't it an outdated? How do we believe the Word of God? Uh, time today doesn't afford the opportunity to dive into all around the Word of God. But if that's a question you have, and it's a great question to engage with, I would encourage you to track down authors like Lee Strobel in his Case for Christ or Case for Faith. I would read through books by Nicky Gumbel, the founder of the Alpha program, and he has a book on questions of faith. And in both of those, both those authors as well as others tackle this subject of how can we believe the word of God? And if we would study seriously, you would come to that place just like I have of realizing that the word of God is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is valuable and necessary. It is not some fantasy fairy tale work of fiction. It is a true work. Ravi Zacharias, the apologist who passed away recently, he once said, God has revealed enough of himself so as to make faith plausible, but not so much of himself to make faith unnecessary. Let me say that again. God has revealed enough of himself to make faith plausible, but not so much so as to make faith unnecessary. Yes, when we come to the Word of God, there is an element of faith, but it is not blind faith based on a devoid of fact or evidence or proof. The Word of God stands true and stands against the test of time. And so you and I have the whole counsel, the whole witness of Scripture as it testifies to Jesus Christ. What will we do? How will we respond to the Word of God? And as I said right at the beginning, both those themes that run parallel, kingdom ethics and responding to the witness in the word, lead to that final conclusion in this story. And the conclusion is simply, our choices have consequences. How we live our lives in the kingdom of God has a consequence. How we respond to the witness of scripture as it testifies to Jesus Christ has a consequence. Our choices, every day we make hundreds of choices. Every one of those choices has a consequence. It blows my mind when I watch the news, when I read social media, when I see what's taking place in the world around. And there's this increasing movement of people want to be free to do whatever they want to do. They want to be free to have and pursue and and be and, and do, but they want to avoid the consequences. They want to avoid the responsibility of those choices and and where the responsibility might land and and what those consequences could be. And people would say things like, don't hold me accountable. Don't, Don't enforce any rules over me. Let me do what I want to do freely. 
In fact, the world's mantra, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's okay, is absolute garbage. Someone will always get hurt. If we make life about the pursuit of our own happiness, our own ideals, our own desires and wants, someone will get hurt every single time. Our choices have consequences. And we need to realize that we can choose those consequences. This is what Jesus is encouraging the crowd. What should the consequence of our choices be? Well, if we lived out those kingdom ethics and those kingdom ideals that God calls us to, and if we respond positively and respond in the correct way to the witness of Scripture, well, then the consequence is blessing. It's life. It's hope. It's a future. It's prosperity. It's abundance. It's peace. It's the grace and presence of God when we live in accordance with His ideals. That's the consequence. But if we choose to reject, if we choose to go our own way, if we choose to ignore the witness of Scripture, well, there again, there is the consequence. As we saw in that image, the rich man in Hades, the consequence may not be a literal fire and sulfur and and brimstone, although Scriptures kind of speak about that image, but definitely the consequence of living that decision and that choice to the logical end and logical conclusion, the consequence is eternal separation from our Heavenly Father. And that will be turmoil and pain beyond belief. We're created for relationship with God. Jesus came to reconcile us back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. God longs to bestow this blessing of His presence and His grace upon us. And as we receive that gift, as we respond, and as we live in accordance, this is when we start to experience the presence and blessing of God. My friends, I don't know where you stand in relation to God. I don't know the choice you're making in terms of living kingdom ethics and responding to the witness of Scripture. But I would encourage you, I would implore you today to choose to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you might say, well, I did that many, many years ago, well, then I implore and I I encourage you to live those kingdom ethics so that as we live out and as we respond to the witness of the word of God, as we respond to the word, Jesus Christ, that we would start to experience his presence and his kingdom in our midst. May the Lord bless you as you contemplate this story of Jesus Christ. And may the Holy Spirit open your eyes and your heart as he would seek to lead and guide and speak to you today. Let's pray together. My Heavenly Father, as I hear this story told by my Savior Jesus, what a powerful story, what a powerful invitation into kingdom living, to live in in accordance with your ideals in your kingdom, knowing that when we choose that, when we live according to your word and to your ideals and to your instructions to us, it's then that we experience the blessing of your presence. We may not receive everything we want. Many of us will still go through hardship and trial, but we know that this life is not the end. We know there will come a moment when we will step from life here into eternity with you. 
And then, based on our response to the witness of your word, to the witness that points us to Jesus Christ, the very word of God, oh God, I pray that we would see and experience the blessing of life forevermore in your presence. For those watching this who stand at that crossroads, Holy Spirit, I pray right now, would you guide and lead? May they hear that invitation and may they receive. And may they make the right choice today to follow you, to follow you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. For we would ask this in your name. And together we say, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you.